You know, it's amazing when most people think about the Bible or Jesus or church, they think about people who are all about getting you to heaven. But Jesus actually talks about coming to give us life and life more abundantly. To live life here and now with a sense of purpose and meaning. In fact, there's a proverb in the uh, Psalms that says, Teach me, God, to number my days that I might be wise. That often we put off things, like that song said. Well, I'll eventually get around to that. And so we... We're going to prioritize our marriage, but it's got to get through this season. I'm going to prioritize time with my kids, but I'm going to have to get to that later. I'm going to eventually get to working on my health, but not right now. That eternity and mortality bring priorities into focus. Jesus wanted his followers to practice what they believed. To put into practice in the life here and now the truths that he was giving. And have you ever noticed... That there's a huge dichotomy between what you profess and what you actually practice. I say I believe certain things strongly, but I don't necessarily apply those things that strongly. Happens in lots of ways, right? It's the couple that says, yeah, I guess I believe in the Bible, maybe, but I've heard that old thing about don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I think that's probably a good idea. Going to bed angry is a bad idea. It comes out of the Bible, by the way. And a couple says, we, we profess that that's true. We shouldn't go to bed angry. And yet, two or three nights a week, you're laying on the seam. You know the seam of the mattress? Right on the edge, because you're ticked off because what she said or what he didn't do or that they didn't want to make love tonight. And so you're laying on the seam as far as you can from them to let them know about the distance. And though you profess to be patient and kind and believe in forgiveness. In practice, there's a huge chasm between the two. You say to your kids, do your best, do your best, do your best. The most important thing is you do your best. And then you get the report card. And what do you ask? What'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get? I mean, I got to tell you, somebody who brought home straight A's an awful lot of the time, there were a lot of times I did a lot of A work that was not even close to my best. No, I mean, I blew off the class, gave a halfway effort, but it was an easy class. And when our kids hear us say, do your best, but ask, what'd you get? They find out what's really important to us is what you get, not doing your best. We say that forgiveness is important. We believe in apologizing and forgiveness is, is the glue of relationships. But what's the last time you remember coming out of your mouth words like, I'm sorry for what I did, son, wife, husband. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Oh, I'm not sure those words have ever come out of my mouth. Speaking of apologies, I'm often... In messages, I do lots and lots of research and double and triple check all the sources. And last week I was wrong, so I want to own that, by the way. The uh, video clip that I used from Dr. Moto's speech experiment was uh, tested in a double-blind study and found not to be scientifically accurate, by the way. So somebody brought that to my attention this week. So I want to apologize for that. And I want to show you it was a great analogy of the importance of words, but a lousy science experiment. So I want to practice what I preach and own that as well. I saw several people who had, who had uh, repeated the experiment, but apparently they were equally bad scientists. So I want to own that. You know, I might say that I believe God's in control. But I was journaling about two weeks ago. I was down in Florida and at a conference. And while I was there, I was, I was journaling together. 
In my journal, I wrote down, God, I say I believe you're in control, but I'm feeling a lot of anxiety. Specifically, both of my kids are graduating college. I'm very excited about that in the next couple months. But I remember 10 years ago, Beth and I decided not to go through foster care. We went and got the introductory study on it and the lay of the land. We decided not to move forward with foster care specifically because it was so labor-intensive that we felt like we couldn't be the kind of parents to Javen and Sierra we wanted to be if we went through this level of ongoing training and bureaucracy. Oh, the irony. <laughs> that we would adopt Mr. Quinn, and with his autism and blindness, the level of complexity in our life is a hundredfold uh, what we had in, learned ten years ago. And as I was reflecting in my journal, I was like, God, I, I just really have some regrets. Regrets about the kind of dad that I've been to Javen and Sierra. Not that I haven't done my best, not that I haven't done my best in a situation, but I just regret what couldn't happen because of all the plates they were spinning. <clears throat> I felt like God said, Chad, do you believe I'm in control? Yeah. Well, you don't act like it. You act like you're in control of everything. It's your job to control things that are beyond your control. Do you believe I'm a heavenly father that can father them in the areas that you aren't able to? And I think I probably did an above-average job, but it wasn't the job I wanted to do just because of how many things I was spinning. And I really felt like God was helping me to say, Chad, you profess to think I'm in control, but you're practicing life as if you're in control. And I want to propose a thesis that you may reject initially, and I'm going to try and develop it today, and it's this, that we rarely practice what we profess but we always do what we believe. We rarely do what we profess, but we always do what we believe. So if you want to know what you really believe, look at what you practice. If you really believe apologizing and forgiveness is key, you'll do it. If you just profess that forgiveness is important and don't practice it, you don't really believe it. If you really believe that generosity is the key to life, but you don't practice it, then you don't really believe that generosity is the key to life. We rarely practice what we profess, but you always do what you believe. So if you want to know what you really believe about anything, look at your life's practices. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to talk about here. So whether you believe in the Bible as, as coming from God, whether you believe that Jesus really was from God, I'm telling you, this is just practical life skill here. It's just going to ring true. Because Jesus is going to challenge and support this very notion. That when you don't put things into practice, it's pure profession. It's not what you really believe. Because what you believe will show itself in reality. And he gives us two truths to develop that. And if you've ever come across hypocritical Christians, and I'm one of them, by the way, so you came across at least one here today, um, Christians, there's a huge dichotomy between what they say and what they do. You're frustrated by it, right? The reason you're not even interested in being a Christian is because you see the dichotomy between profession and practice. Well, just know you're in alignment with Jesus. Jesus is equally as frustrated, equally as challenging, equally as bothered by the thing that bothers you. And here's how he says it. Number one, Jesus is going to give us the first truth. What I'm saying, Jesus says, only works if you work it. Right? It only works if you work it. You can call and profess, Lord, Lord. 
But you don't do the things I say. It's useless. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them is like an analogy I'm about to tell. So notice, Jesus says, you can be a person who calls, says stuff, and and even comes near things. But if you don't do it, it's not going to apply or work in your life. And this issue really, if you look at the Eastern mindset versus the Western mindset, they really view truth very differently. Ever since uh, Alexander the Great and Hellenism and sort of the Greek way of thinking went into the Western civilization as we know it, they turned information into abstract principles you collect. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. And we learn lots of interesting things that we don't in any way apply. We're just in information gathering mode. That was very different from the Eastern mindset, the Jewish mindset. The Jewish mindset is to... Information wasn't abstract ideas to collect. It was stuff you put into practice. In fact, the question that the rabbis would often ask themselves, which I think is worthy of any of us to ask ourselves on any topic, is not what do you believe, but how deeply do you believe what you say you believe? How deeply do you believe what you say you believe? Has it soaked into the core of what you think, how you feel, and how you act? And spending time collecting new beliefs, what if instead you went deeper into what you already say you believe? Now, if you are a Christian, this might be a truth you're familiar with. If not, let me tell you something pretty amazing that you can see Christians don't apply. There's lots of them, but here's one. The Bible says that when you understand the grace of God, what Jesus did on the cross, and he forgives you your past, present, and future, in Romans 8 it says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. And yet how many religion, followers of Jesus, leaders of Jesus, seem like they are just weighed down with a blanket of guilt, right? And if you want to join their movement, they want to sort of throw the big blanket of guilt on you too. And the self-hatred, the self-defeat, the bad self-image. It's like, oh my goodness, do they really believe that they're under no condemnation? Because they certainly don't act like it. And Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say, it only works if you work it. And let me tell you what doesn't work. Sincerity is not enough. Sincerity is not enough. Sincerity is not action. You can call, sincerely call God, and you can say, Lord, Lord. Whenever a phrase is repeated twice in the Bible, it's a sign of sincerity or a sign of emotion or affection. God turns to Jacob in the Old Testament and says, Jacob, Jacob. He's calling a guy named Samuel and says, Samuel, Samuel. It's very personal, very sincere. David, who knocked down Goliath, later in his life his son will betray him. Big mutiny. His son will eventually be killed in a terrible accident. And when the general comes to tell him that his son has died, David collapses on his feet, on his knees and says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, oh, that I would have died in your place. Deep expression of emotion and sincerity. And Jesus says, that's fine, but that is not going to cut it. Sincerity is not enough. You can come to me and say, Lord, Lord. 
And it can be affectionate, and it can be genuine, and it can be sincere, but it's not going to help if you don't practice it. In fact, the word Lord means master of the house, or house builder, or boss. You can call me your house builder, but if you're not actually building your life based on what I say, it's not going to work. Sincerity is not enough. So here's the question, why is it, not just Christians, why is it human beings have this ability to have a dichotomy between what they say they believe and what they practice? Like, how does that happen? Well, psychologists have shown so many ways that the human brain, which also validates what the Bible says, by the way, but using psychological terms, how we're able to have this, this distinction between what we profess and what we practice. How can we say one thing and not do the other? Well, one of the things psychologists have discovered is that we have the ability as human beings to practice what's called ethical fading and predictive recollection. Here's how it works. We have what we know we should do. The Bible says God's placed that should in our heart. But we know what we should do. I should behave ethically. I should do the right thing. I should be a loving person. I should be a kind person. And so we predict that since I know I should, I bet I'm the kind of person that will. Then what actually happens, it's decision time. It comes decision time and we engage in what's called ethical fading. Uh, I don't know if I really want to do that. Uh, that doesn't really apply here. There's a good exception. Why? And so because we want to be known as the people who do the right thing, we take the things we don't like and we fade them into the background. And then the future comes. And in the future, we recall that we were exactly what we predicted, good people. Now, the people around us are like, actually, you're, you're kind of self-centered. No, 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 no. I know I'm the kind of good father. In fact, it's always great when you see people first getting married. Almost everyone who gets married starts by saying, I'm basically a good person. And I married a basically good person. And when you get married, you know what you find out? You know what I found out? I am basically a good person as long as I get what I want. But when I'm with somebody who wants something differently, thinks something differently, I am suddenly aware that either I've got a problem or they have a problem. And the reason we don't practice what we profess is because we actually predict we're going to do well. We fade out the things we don't want to remember we did wrong. And then we remember that we did so well. Which is why we have such an inaccurate view of ourselves. I'll give you an example. A book, Blind Spots, references a study in the 1970s of the Ford Pinto. So you know the Ford Pinto? What you may or may not remember is that they had a huge problem in that rear-end collisions caused massive fires and explosions in the gas tank. Now, they discovered this, and they did a calculation. And the calculation was it would cost $11 per car to fix this in 1970, and they weighed the cost of fixing all those cars against the potential lawsuit cost. And they found it would be much cheaper to fight the lawsuits than to fix the cars. Now, I can't believe those people. I would never do anything like that. Well, at the moment that they had to make the decision, they were up against VW high competition, The assembly line was ready to go, high pressure to meet deadlines, high pressure to compete. And in that moment, what the study showed is that instead of seeing this or even framing this as an ethical decision, people's lives might be at stake, people might die, one of the ways they engage in ethical fading is they frame the whole conversation and said, this isn't about ethics, it's just a business decision. It's just about weighing numbers. What's the best use of resources? And they said, by 
calling something a business decision, you filtered out any ethical implications, and that became the very way in which you engage in ethical fading. I mean, I do that all the time. Oh, it's just a parenting decision. It's just my personality. You know, and of course I'm angry. I'm Irish. You know, we, we have all kinds of ways that we ethically fade, not taking accountability for what we do. Jesus goes on. Jesus says, Another reason that we have this distinction between what we profess and what we practice is that we don't realize that hearing is not the same thing as listening. And just because the words made into your head, if they didn't make out of your life, you didn't really hear. And the same thing is true in the Jewish Eastern mindset. To hear is to apply. Jesus will say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What? I'm hearing. No, no. A ear to hear is someone who hears and applies and practices. And one of the reasons we don't hear, really listen, really apply, is because of what psychologists call psychological cleansing. Psychological cleansing is a process by which when we do something wrong, we remember that we did it right. Here's what one psychologist says. Individuals can also restore their self-image when they did something wrong through psychological cleansing. Psychological cleansing is an aspect of moral disengagement. A process allows us to selectively turn our usual ethical standards on or off at will. These two researchers found that consumers who desire an article of clothing that they know is produced by child labor reconcile that push-pull attraction to their purchase by reducing the degree to which they view child labor as a societal problem. That's really a big issue. That's a nice sweater. That's a great price on a sweater. You know what? It's a fallen world. It's not like I can control everything. Who knows exactly what child labor is or isn't. It's not like I'm really supporting it as much as I'm just wearing a nice sweater I got a good deal for. So you don't necessarily negate the whole thing, but you just say, you know, at some point I can't control everything. And so you take something that was very important until it applied to you in what's called psychological cleansing. The article goes on. The process of moral disengagement allows us to have contrary to our personal code of ethics while still maintaining the belief that we're ethical people. So I got an ethic. I don't apply my ethic, but I tell myself that I'm an ethical person and I cleanse myself from guilt by fading away whether or not I should apply it here. We rationalize unethical behavior, change our definition of ethical behavior, and over time become desensitized to our own unethical behavior. Reflecting back on high school or college lifestyle, this is so great. Most people remember that they were easygoing, laughing, fun, and excited. They may not remember specific conversations or what they did on a daily basis, but their recollections are probably vaguely positive predictive recollection. I remember when Facebook first came out, Jenny Sutter reached out to me and wanted to befriend me. I hadn't talked to her since high school. As soon as I got that friend request, I flashed back to biology class ninth grade and I went, oh. Jenny had a stuttering problem and I think I made fun of her every day for a semester. And I remember getting that Facebook request, and before I said, one, I couldn't believe she was befriending me, um, I said, i got to apologize. And I wrote her a note and said, well, I remember how I treated you, and i got to say, I am so sorry. I'm embarrassed of what I did and how long I did it. I am so, will you forgive me? In the natural state of the human psyche to defend itself as righteous 
and good is so embedded in us. That's actually why the grace of God, instead of being an excuse for bad living, which is a lot of time what happens, the real nature of grace is when you realize you've been forgiven for everything you did, past, present, and future, it's designed so that you can bring your garbage out. You can see yourself for how bad you really were or are and own it because it's already been forgiven. So now I want to fully own it. I don't need to cleanse myself psychologically because I've been cleansed spiritually so that I can own this deeper. And Jesus says, I want you to be my followers, to be my movement, to be people who practice what they say they believe. Because it only works if you work it. Number two is that if you want to know what you believe, reality will eventually tell you. Reality will reveal what you really believe. He tells a story. He, the man who puts it into practice, is like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock, and he who heard and did nothing was like a man who built a house on the earth without foundation, the sand. Now, all through Israel are these things called wadis. Now, these wadis are gigantic dry riverbeds. And because Israel has a dry season and a rainy season, it can be drought for months, and then it can be flash floods. But because Israel is so big, and yet these canals can go all along the way, there can be a problem. I'll show you what that problem is in a second. Jesus says, the man who puts it into practice climbs up and does the hard work of digging deep into the rock. It's hard work to build your house on a rock. You've got to dig deep. It's much easier to go into the, 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 the wadi where there's gravel, there's sand in the dry riverbed. Much easier to pound the stakes in for your tent. It's much easier to build on the sand than up on the rock. And you might look at the dry riverbed and say, Oh, sure, this is fine. I don't see any rain. It's a beautiful day. Has it rained in months? I think we'll be safe here. She says, do not build your life in a sandy wadi. Because what will happen is that reality will show you that as sincere as you are, as discerning as you think you are, you're in trouble. When the flood arose, where's the flood coming from? The flood arose, the stream, now look at that word, the stream beat vehemently. Like, have you ever used that phrase before? Whoa, be careful. That stream's going to beat you down. Look at the little babbling brook. It's so dangerous. Don't get near the babbling brook. It might knock your house down. Never have I thought to say those phrases. Why does Jesus not say it once but says it twice? The stream beat vehemently. The word stream in the Greek uh, language can mean both a brook or a flood. What kind of a language mistakes a stream for a flood? Well, I'll give you a little cultural background that might go, oh, now I understand what Jesus is saying. So if you're living in Israel, there could be rain, like a huge rainstorm coming down up here in the north section. You're in one of these dry riverbeds, and you're camping, hiking out in one of the wadis. It is a beautiful sunny day. You have no idea there's a problem of a rainstorm 100 miles north. In fact, let me show you this, and I'll explain what might happen. So let me show you some video. So you come, you're hiking that day, and you're in one of the wadis. You come across the Negev wadi, or the Judean wadi, and you're like, oh, there's a little stream here, maybe some water left over from a few months ago. And you're like, hey, this is a great place to camp out. Beautiful sunny day, no issues. You say, hey, we're going to hike, spend the night here. So you set up tent. You build your house right here in the wadi. And you're camping there, looking beautiful. You think, I think I'm safe. But 100 miles to the north, 
the skies look very different. I mean, there is a storm pounding up in the north. And that rain is coming down, but it's not soaking into the ground because of the rock. Instead, all the water from that storm up north is being funneled into that wadi. And suddenly, what was rain turns into a creek. Or if you're from the south, a creek. And that creek and that creek begins to get a little bigger. And now it's kind of a stream. But again, you don't see it. You're still 100 miles away. It's still sunny days up in the wadi. And that stream begins to grow. And it grows into a small river. And that small river is now being funneled and carrying steam and strength. And now it's turning into a river. And that river is headed your way. You don't see it. You don't even realize why there's a problem. And now there is not only a river, there is a flood. If you look at the time code on this, up in the top left, you'll see this is happening over a matter of hours, not days. This flood has turned into a stream, turned into a flood, and now it is racing through the wadi. 2017, they had 150 hikers caught in the Judean wadi who were hiking along and didn't see a flash flood coming until it was too late. They had to rescue them and pull them out. Because these wadis have such vertical, straight up and down sides, if you're caught in a wadi when the flood comes, it's almost impossible to escape unless you've made a way to get up and around with a natural path. And that's what Jesus is saying. You might think you're pretty discerning. You might think that stream's not a big deal. Ah, come on, I'm not applying it here. I'm not applying that issue to my marriage. I'm not being particularly forgiving in this area. And you might say, it's just a stream. What are you making such a big deal about, Jesus? And Jesus, that little stream is going to turn into a flood. And that flood is going to come ricocheting through that wadi. And it is going to knock your house down. And with that in mind, then, we come back and we say, this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. Number one, delayed consequences allow us to deny consequences. So you build your house on that unfirm foundation, and there's no immediate consequence. You neglect your health. You start coasting in your marriage. You don't practice forgiveness. You don't practice being generous, mercifully to one another. There's not an immediate consequence, right? Immediately your marriage doesn't fall apart. Immediately your your marriage doesn't fall apart. Immediately your health doesn't fall apart when you skip a couple workouts. Immediately your kids don't turn into monsters when you don't spend some time with them. But when you have delayed consequences, the wadi 100 miles away, you begin to deny consequences. It's just a stream Sure, I haven't applied that here. What are you making a big deal about? And Jesus says, what seems delayed will result in, when it comes, immediately, immediately, that stream, that little stream you tolerated, that little area you didn't apply, will immediately knock your house down when it comes. So you've got to work against the human tendency to deny consequences just because they're delayed. And Jesus says, What you profess will not protect you from pain. Lord, Lord, you're the house builder. Oh, really? Then build your house on the rock. No, no, that's too much work. I think I'll build it down here in the wadi. You can profess. You can proclaim. You can call. You can do whatever you want. And that is not going to protect you from the pain of unapplied truth. 
Because reality is going to show you what you really believe. When you hear and do nothing, the ruin of the house will be great. And notice it's not just you will be hurt, the whole house will be hurt. Which means your employees will be hurt. Your family will be hurt. Your marriage will be hurt. And that stream of that habit, that stream of that unapplied area in your life, and when that flood comes, it will carry your innocence. (laughs) See my innocence. Where did my integrity go? Have you seen my marriage? I think it's floating about two decades down, two kilometers down the path. And the whole time you said to yourself, it's not a big deal. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to get carried away. And that's why Jesus is so practical in saying, guys, I'm just telling you, this is how life works. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to call yourself religious. You don't have to be my follower. This stuff just works. And if you don't do it, reality is going to show you what you really believe. And you really didn't build and apply this. And guess what? There goes your reputation. There goes your family. There goes the things you said were important because you didn't apply what you said. You can say, I believe in being financially, fiscally responsible. But you don't save and you get to retirement. You're like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? The ruin of the house will be great. Psychology Today did a study and showed that many of us pick up from our parents, not at all what they say, but we pick up what they do, don't we? I mean, your parents might have brought you to Easter and you saw Jesus up on this cross. You know, it's kind of weird that there's a big bloody guy up in, in front of the church. Like, it's kind of weird. But they talked about forgiveness, how important it was. And you're like, okay, okay, okay. Maybe you went to confirmation class. You learned about your bunch of doctrine about forgiveness. But then you came home in your family. And how often did you hear your mom apologize to your dad out loud in front of you? Some of you are saying all the time. That was really easy for mom to do, and it's easy for me to do. How often did you hear dad apologize to you when he did something wrong? (coughs) Really? Dad, apologize? Do you wonder why it's hard for you to apologize? Because what dad or mom didn't do flowed downstream. The whole house, the next generation was affected. And guess what? If you don't do the work of applying, it will flow down to your kids and your grandkids. Not because you didn't believe something that's going to get you into heaven, because you didn't apply something that's supposed to change your life. Psychologists tell us that parents who are worriers might say, trust God, he's in control. But what you practice communicates the world's a scary place. And you should be fearful, like I'm fearful. And it's your responsibility to control the things you can't control. That what we model and practice communicates so much more than what we say. And the opposite is true. When you see somebody apply, especially in the, in the most hard-to-apply situations, truth, it translates. I was an article about a Mars radio controller during Vietnam. He was operating a radio-controlled network of amateur radios called Mars. And he was in Japan. And a call came through from a tragic military incident that occurred in Vietnam. If you wanted to get hold of your family in those days, you had to bounce the signal from amateur radio to amateur radio to get back to talk to loved ones. 
So this soldier in Vietnam had bounced the signal over 30 uh, ricochets back and forth, including the man telling the story in Japan, and eventually made his way to talk to his dad in Hawaii. They got the signal connected. They had three minutes to talk. His dad said, Clarence, what's going on? Clarence said, Dad, Dad has been a terrible accident. I blew off both my legs up to my knee. What does this mean for me as a man, as a soldier? What what am I going to do with my life? And his dad listened and said, Son, I love you. I am proud of you. I am here for you. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you and so is God. We're going to get through this together. And I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for the doctors doing the work on you, that they will give you the best possible care. But your life is not over. This is not the end. It's a difficult chapter, but I am here with you, right here and right now. As that signal bounced over those 30 networks, the man in Japan said he just began to weep. He couldn't even see the meter on the radios. He saw this father hearing horrific news that no one would want to hear about their son and speaking encouragement, putting courage into his son in the most dire of circumstances. And he says, son, I want to pray for you right here and right now. So I pray for my son, God, that you will be with him, that you will strengthen him, that you let him know he's not alone, that you'll be with the doctors to equip them, give them wisdom and direction. And I pray for all the servicemen serving in Vietnam, God, that you would be with them, that you would give them courage as you give them protection. In Jesus' name, amen. So as he signed off and said amen, the caller on the first station is WCIC, amen. WKRC, amen. 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 Which is a Bible word that means so be it. And the impact of hearing a father practice and apply truth to a most dire circumstance ricocheted across the globe impacting people of faith and not of faith saying I hope I have a dad that could talk to me like that if I'm I'm in a situation like that because that's the power of practice truth which is why Jesus is challenging each one of us what are we building on the consequences are dire but how deep are you willing to dig she says, if you want to be the kind of person who puts into practice, you've got to be willing to dig deep. How deeply do I believe and have I applied what I say I believe? To lay the foundation of your life. Some questions. Do you believe in friendship? Dig deep. Do you have any friends? People who really know what's going on in your life. Have you organized your life to have a great marriage? Or just a surviving marriage? You've got to dig deep into your schedule, into your calendar? Is it even possible with the things you're juggling, with the, with the ways you spread yourself thin, to have a great marriage? Can you connect with God with the patterns you have in your life? Then maybe you're not really building your life with God as your rock. Are you leaving a legacy? Have you dug deep to find out what a legacy would even look like in your life? Why are you always facing fear? What is it you've built your life on? Your status? Your performance? Your savings account? Your name recognition? What is it you've built your life on that's causing so much fear to come out of you? Why is it you won't ask for help? Because I'm stubborn. All right, then you've built your life in the wadi of stubbornness, and that is going to eventually ruin your marriage and your relationships. 
dig deep. Why are you so stubborn? Why won't you get help? Don't wise people who don't know taxes hire tax accounts to help them with their taxes? If you're going to build your own house, are you going to be your own architect? Are you going to hire somebody smarter than you who's an architect, right? That's just what wise people do. Why would you not be wise in these areas in your life and ask for help? You've got to dig deep and find out. Why aren't you making changes? Why aren't you being as generous as you said you'd be? If I ever had money like that, I'd give so much away. And then you get money like that, well, maybe not. Why aren't you extending mercy? Why aren't you caring for the poor? And often it's going to require you to dig deep to figure out what you're building your life on. I got a chance a few weeks ago, about a month ago now, to go with a trip from Cancun. It was amazing to see people putting into practice caring for the poor, giving up time in their schedules, giving up vacation time, giving up their lives to say, we want to build into other people. Because what happens is when you apply this stuff Jesus talks about, loving other people, what happens is when you build into others, God builds into you. I like you to hear some stories of folks who are putting into practice the words of Jesus to love your neighbor as, pardon me, as yourself. Jesus said that whoever hears his words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Jesus uses a building metaphor when he speaks about the church because churches are always about building, building friendships, building faith, building community. Sometimes it's about building into people's lives by putting his words about loving other people into practice. Four years ago, a bunch of us hung together right here in Cancun at Back to Back and got a chance to literally build a soccer field that thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people have played on over the last four years. Part of why we create these type of experiences is so we can take the love of God and put it into practice by building buildings and soccer fields and community centers that change people's lives and grow their faith as well. The first project we were involved in here back to back Cancun was we had the fortunate timing of putting in the soccer field. You know, the soccer field at the time, you really didn't know what you were doing. You're putting in a soccer field, but when you come back and you, you, you see what that soccer field means to the community, you're actually building this hope and this love and just what it means to that community is unbelievable. Since the soccer field has been built, um, what a true blessing is, is coming back and seeing what other teams have done as a collaborative unit, coming down and adding things that are very important like craft sections, sewing rooms, a dentist office, a palapa, a gathering area, an outdoor pizza oven where people can gather. Um, it's just a true community is being formed. So on Sunday we were paired with uh, individuals and I was uh, picked a guy named Kevin on the bus. Uh, and Kevin uh, was uh, very closed, you know, very, uh, um, you know, didn't want to make eye contact uh, and all of that. Uh, and I thought, here's, a, here's an opportunity for me to kind of get involved. Throughout the day, um, he was just everywhere, everywhere but my side. So he didn't want really to, to really make a connection with me. Um, and I, I found myself uh, thinking, this is, this is the kid that needs the most help. 
when you're doing really hard work and you're putting concrete on a roof or you're building a chicken coop like we did yesterday and you see the instant result of the work, but then you go back and you think about Kevin, you realize that that's not an instantaneous turnaround uh, and you've got to really slowly step into an, an opening up. Uh, and those steps um, take time. I'm very anxious to, to come back and, and see that growth in Kevin. Uh, and so hopefully Kevin um, will continue uh, kind of coming to back-to-back and um, experience and playing like a kid and, and really opening up. Uh, and I think that's just going to give him uh, what he needs. The first time I came down here, um, it was more of a personal um, challenge. Uh, I had never been on any kind of mission trip uh, uh, or anything like that before. It was something that I wanted to experience. Um, and in my mind, I figured, well, I was going to go down there and somehow make an impact. Um, what I quickly realized was that the impact was actually being made on me, um, and it gave me a different perspective. Um, and these, these people that I've had the privilege to meet and engage with have definitely um, changed the way I think about serving others. And the service here uh, becomes addicting. Year over year, we just cannot wait to get back down here. We've been down here as a family. This is my second men's trip. Um, it's, it's something that we look forward to, and I cannot wait to get down here every year. Each person from our church who came down here and built a community center, built a soccer field, were putting Jesus' words into practice when he said, go and love other people. What's amazing is people give up vacations to come down here to love on others, but what they discover is God builds into their faith. When you give to other people, it develops a new type of love in you. It's a God type of love. The kind of love that gives to give, it doesn't give to get. Well, that is what our church is about, and if you want to be part of something like that, we're going to be planning trips uh, throughout the year again. If you want to go down weekly down to City Gospel, we've got teams that go every Sunday night. If you want to work with Habitat the Humanity, uh, our team and our partnership with them, Interparish Ministries. If you want to go on a trip down to Cancun, let us know how we can get you connected with our partners with Back to Back and uh, the Medical Mission. We'd love to have you have an experience of putting into practice Christ's love. Second, as we finish up uh, Startup today, one of the other ways you can put into practice, if you believe what's going on here, say I want to be part of uh, putting some money together or a, a campaign together or a donation together for the media experience. I jokingly said if you get on our website, you can uh, hear our messages in cutting-edge 1999 technology, MP3s you can download. Our hope is to upgrade a couple decades and have video available. So if you're, many people have said they're praying about that and waiting for tax changes and finish taxes up. If you want to give a pledge to that, let us know at the office. We're still about a third of the way toward our, our goal of raising that. That's another way you can give. Lastly, we had just overwhelming amount of taking it to the streets love last week. We had like 200 bags came in to help those here in our community suffering from uh, the flood from a couple weeks ago. So if you want to grab more of those, still needed. Interparish Ministries, one of our partners, very, very grateful. You can see the bags filled up out there. 
Uh, here's the list inside the bag of what you'll need. Another way that you can give and serve and put into practice what Jesus said. Lastly, last announcement as we go. Easter is showing up here in just a few weeks. And in our Easter service, you need complimentary tickets. We have six services, two on Saturday, 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock. And we have four on Sunday, 8.50, 10, 11.10, and a new one at 12.20. And we have a brunch after. The brunch is for those coming to the 12.20 service. You need tickets. They're all complimentary for all those. You can get those out by the fireplace. Also, on Saturday, we have a special event, helicopter egg drop petting zoo at four o'clock and at five so if you're looking for an excuse to invite somebody to church easter is a great excuse to do that and when doing that even if they don't want to come to the service they're more than welcome to come and enjoy a helicopter drop of eggs or petting zoo as well that's our way of being generous to our community so grab tickets for that on your way out grab a blue bag by the information center thank you for joining us for startup next week beth guckenberger is with us for a brand new series called plotline thanks for being here today